from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. I am so glad you're here to join us in a conversation in which we explore, well, everything related to work and the rest of life. That's your family, your community, our community, our society, our broken world, and our role in healing it, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit, those different parts of your life. How do we create harmony among them? As individuals, as families, as members of organizations and communities, well, I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, the Wharton Leadership Program. And I bring every week some smart person who's got an interesting story to tell or research to share to help us in that in that quest. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. And if you want to find out more about what we do there, just visit totalleadership.org all kinds of free resources and information about how we help people and organizations find greater harmony and improve performance in all the different parts of life. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. Well, the social, political, cultural unrest of this last year has brought new attention to perennial issues uh, in our in our society of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, in the United States and around the world, we've been talking about this on this show for a long time, and it seems like it's never enough. There's there's so much more to explore, to learn, and to 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 derive insights for action from. And today's guest is a, uh, a a world expert on how we can learn more and move forward by, well, embracing our differences, whether as a manager, an employee, or as a private citizen. Martin Davidson is the Johnson & Higgins Professor of Business Administration at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He currently serves as the Senior Associate Dean and Global Chief Diversity Officer for the school. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome him to the show. Martin, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks so much, Stu. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, let me tell listeners a little bit more about you before we jump into our conversation. Martin's thought leadership has changed how many people, executives, others approach inclusion and diversity in their organizations. He teaches, conducts research, and consults with leaders around the world to help them use diversity strategically to drive high performance. His book, The End of Diversity as We Know It, Why Diversity Efforts Fail and How Leveraging Difference Can Succeed, introduces a research-driven roadmap to help leaders more effectively create and capitalize on diversity in organizations. He's working on a new project that has to do with weirdness. We're going to be talking about that as well. Uh, Martin has been a member of the Darden faculty since 1998, if I have that right. Um, previously, he was a member of the faculty at the Tuck School at Dartmouth, and his undergrad is in psychology and social relations. That's the old Socrel group at Harvard University, and he's got a PhD in social psychology from Stanford University. Martin, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Stu. I really am uh, looking forward to, to our conversation. Yes. Well, uh, there's a lot I want to know about you and your background, but I want to first get to like the, the, the meaty stuff on uh, your take on diversity and inclusion. For our listeners, uh, can you just give us a brief description of the typical way that people think about DNI, diversity and inclusion, and then offer your take? Um, I will. And Stu, you know, it's so funny because I, I do think that there's a distinction. I like to call it sort of a, a managing diversity way of thinking about DEI and a leveraging difference, which is my word. Okay. I don't think they're separate. I think they're related, but I'll tell you the difference. The, the, the managing diversity uh, 
way of approaching it is the way I think most of us, if you ask sort of the average person, this is how people in the United States would think about diversity. They think about the importance of race and gender. They think about, about how you have to create um, equity um, in a world, especially in a, in a society where there continue to be racial inequities, where there continue to be gender inequities, where, where people of different sexual orientations, people of different um, ability um, are in a one down position. Mm-hmm. And that that's a part of it. All really, really critical stuff. And in organizations in particular, you end up thinking about diversity and inclusion, and we see this happening as part of HR. It's right. The, it's, the, it's, the, it's people stuff. All totally cool, but I think- You say that with almost a, a tone of uh, degradation. Am I reading that correctly? People <laughs> stuff, you know, stuff that doesn't really matter that much. I'm just channeling, Stu. I'm just channeling. <laughs> no, I, I, right. I don't, I don't, I don't know. That, I, I, of course, not. that's not your perspective, but that's the way it's, that's how you're framing it, right? It is. And I think that's the way that sort of is the, uh, the sort of the, the way most people are sort of seeing it. Mm-hmm. Think about, you know, what is it? The TV show, The Office, Toby and, and, uh, and the, what, the role that HR plays. Um, I think the challenge with, with the DE&I is that um, HR is critical because it is about people. But mm-hmm. I think the power of diversity is more than just the people. It's about what the people do um, when you put them together. And so the distinction between traditional diversity and the leveraging difference work I do is captured in a variety of ways. It's, I've done this work all over the world, I'm working with global clients even right now um, in five continents. Um, and when you go to those continents and you're talking about diversity, they're talking about some very, very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often, you know, it has lots to do with caste and religion and class. And yeah, there's gender everywhere, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. But they're different stories, different ethnicities. So that's one thing that differentiates it. My work, where I think about it is it's got to fit everywhere. Um, but the other thing is that it's really focused on a broad set of differences. And let me be clear, because we know the research. There's the research that sort of says, hey, the more you start talking about diversity of thought and diversity of this and diversity of that, the less you start paying attention to socially relevant diversities like race and gender. That's what the research tells us. Um, mm. And so, so if you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, differences in, say, personality, style, uh, other kinds of variations among individuals that tends to uh, <clears throat> uh, take attention away from the, the social and, and demographic categories that are, exactly. are what? Harder to, to, to grapple with uh, yeah. at a social level? I think, I think that's a piece of it, Stu. I think there's a little bit of that path of least resistance thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to do diversity, but let's, if we talk about diversity of thought, well, then we don't have to deal with some of the difficult things that are connected to race, for example, right. and sexual orientation. Right, because then you can simply say, well, everybody's different. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All lives matter. Right, All, exactly. And here's my twist on this, and this is another part of what is embedded in a leveraging difference, which is mm-hmm. I do value a broad set of differences. And in fact, what I tell organizations is, you know, let's think, let's put our heads to this around under trying to understand what differences matter for us achieving our mission, for mm-hmm. what differences are critical for us allowing, to do us, allowing us to do the work that we're here to do. Um, and that isn't always the traditional categories. It varies. So that's Can you give a, an example of, uh, of a critical difference that's not along the traditional lines that we draw differences? Sure. In fact, I, I, I'll give you the story that I often tell. Okay. Uh, although the different, these the diff- this is a story we reveal. The differences are some of the ones that we think we would all care about in the DEI world. But what's important is, is, how they're, is how they're approached by this organization. I work with a company. I had done some work on race and diversity um, with one of their other divisions in another part of the country. Um, and this uh, particular company was located in uh, off outside of Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if anybody knows sort of Eastern Washington. I think it's beautiful land. I did. I, I've done work. A lot of our there. listeners live up there. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful country up there. It's mm-hmm. great. Um, but here's one of the things when I was doing this, and I haven't been there in a while. But when I was there, it was pretty clear. I'd done this work on race, um, and they said, "Hey, you know what? We want to have greater racial diversity. We want more black people up here in our division." So I got up there and I said, you know, I'm there for a day and they're treating me really nicely and I can see things around. And so we sat down at the meeting and I said, well, here, let me give you the, let me give you the first, my first insight. Um, I don't care what you do. You're never going to get black people to come up here. <laughs> it's like, no. it's like 
Let me just tell listeners, in case they haven't inferred that already, you are a black person. I am a black person. That's right. exactly right. That's right. Right. So, which is an obvious. Right. <laughs> but I mean, it, it isn't unless you can see the person speaking and which I can since we're doing this uh, by way of Zoom, although people are only able to hear. So yeah. you said you're never going to get black people to come up to Spokane. Oh, mm-hmm. no. Why not? <laughs> at, at that time, what was clear to me is that there wasn't a critical mass of community there. Uh-huh. Um, there was, it wasn't a place because a lot of times being right there near the border of Idaho, that there's a lot of sort of, uh, Norman insight that, that many people would believe that that's relatively hostile area racially, mm-hmm. um, that there, that there are communities up there that have some elements of white supremacy and so on yes. and so forth. Um, and so that's a piece of it, but more than anything else, there just isn't what, there wasn't a critical mass there. And the reason this was so important was because I had hung out at this company for a little while and I had talked to some of the people there and I said, you brought me up here to help you with race, but you weren't, I'm not sure you were thinking clearly because here's what I discovered, which is you have much, much greater turnover among Asian and Asian American engineers than you do relative to your white engineers and you're an engineering company. Mm-hmm. So you're losing talent disproportionately and you're not seeing framing that as a diversity issue. I mm-hmm. talked to some of the, the women who worked there and, you know, there was a very clear glass ceiling in this particular division, mm-hmm. uh, equal numbers of men and women, but all the women were at the lower levels and the women who were at the lower levels, many of whom were super talented, noticed it. <laughs> and I said, I know you brought me out here to help you with race, but if you think about your diversity, your difference work, it's probably not in race, not in black and white race. It's probably in the things that make you a company. It's in your talent and your engineers. It's in the, the people who you have in here and how you treat them well. That's where you should be focusing your energy on. So what do you think was misguided in their thinking or why were they not able to see what you could see about the, you know, the, the, the lines that preclude advancement and contribution by women and Asians or Asian Americans? You were able to see that. They couldn't, they just wanted to, you know, well, as you put it, or as I'm understanding what you put, the way you put it, they wanted to fix the, the problem of not having enough black people. Mm-hmm. I, Why did they see that as the problem and not the more pressing problem that you were able to see and probably able to help them to figure out what to do something about? A little, a little bit. I, you know, this is a great question, Stu. I think it has to do with, with sort of our focus and what happens with our attention. I know we talk about bias and so on and so forth. The bias manifests in a lot of different ways. Um, I think a lot of times when it comes to diversity, and to be honest with you, I believe this is part of what we're all navigating in these days, mm-hmm. which is when one type of diversity really screams, we need attention here. We need to pay mm-hmm. attention to this. Our attention goes toward that kind of difference, mm-hmm. even though there may be other ones that are as, if not more important, as important, if not more so. It's um, just not, not creating the same kind of uh uh need or expressed need for attention exactly that's exactly right um and on to that thought i think it's such an important one especially in terms of how it opens up pathways for action let me just remind listeners this is working life on business radio at sirius xm channel 132 you're listening to i am your host Stu friedman and my guest today is professor martin davidson from the university of virginia's darden school of business talking about his work on leveraging differences. So Martin, um, please continue. What is it about uh, a typical organization or the one, the example you just gave, their, their inability to see what's, what the real issues are? How do you help them with that? Part of what I do, Stu, is I get people thinking about uh, a process for engaging and leveraging difference. And I'll tell you how I, you know, I'll, I'll often frame it this way. I always tell the story about being in a, in a chemical company and, and how, as I was there and climbed up on a chair, sort of the wrong chair <laughs> to put something on the wall. Uh Oh, I know. Right. But that this guy comes by who's a line worker. And even though I'm there as a special guest to, to speak to the most senior executives, he comes and tells me, he says, Hey, sir, I need you to get down off that chair right now. Mm. And um, you know, and I say, Hey, hang on a second. Let me just get this up. He says, no, I need you to do it now. And Uh-oh. so I, when I got down, he took half a minute to just explain to me why I had actually engaged in a safety violation. That what I was doing was I had gotten up on the wrong equipment. I didn't have anyone to help spot me or anything like that, you know, yeah. and then he helped me actually get my stuff up on the wall. Mm-hmm. 
And the reason I tell that was because it occurs to me, this is it. This is the end game when I think about diversity and inclusion. It's just manifesting in this company as safety. It's mm-hmm. the whole idea that in this company, safety was part of their DNA. Mm-hmm. It was just part of who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I say, which is great because they were a chemical company and they blow stuff up. So safety, I was glad that safety is important. But that's also what we're trying to strive for with DNI. We want it to be part of the company. We want it to be something that's so second nature. Mm. We want it to be something that everyone in the company is knowledgeable about and everyone is empowered to think about. Really I feels think. like an owner and it can explain to a visitor, hey, here's why I told you to get down off that chair. Because we know and believe that, you know, in, in every fiber of our being that you cannot violate safety standards. Exactly. So you want, you're arguing for how to make ideas about diversity and, and equity and inclusion the same level of embeddedness in the, in the minds and hearts of uh, all, all the members of an organization. Do I have that right? Love the word embeddedness. That's a great word, Stu. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Well, and how do you get there? So that's the question. So, but if, that, so if that's the end game, what the leveraging difference, leveraging difference model does is it walks us through a very, very simple path. Mm-hmm. And it starts with being able to see what differences are most important. So it's a question for leaders and for community members to sort of say, given where we are, who we are, given the times that we're in, what are the differences that matter the most? Mm. And that's where we start with. And for to make it simple, let's just say when we're doing that, we're in a we're engaging in an activity of labels. You know, I just need to 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 put a post-it on the wall. What are the differences that matter? Okay. Because the second step is, well, what do those differences really mean? What does it mean to be a woman operating in this particular engineering company? What does it mean to be someone whose English is a second language? What experience are those people having in the company? Are they advancing? Are they being seen um, and, and, and appreciated uh, and encouraged? Do they have a sense of belonging? Mm-hmm. That's the second part of the other model, which is I have a, a difference that I've labeled, but now I need to put some data to it. I need to understand what that means, what's happening for people in the company. Mm-hmm. And then that takes us to the third part, the third step. And that's simply, okay, well, now that I know what differences we're dealing with and I kind of see what the challenges are, I see what sort of what's going on here. Let's start taking some action. What are some of the steps that we can do? What are some of the experiments as, as how I like to frame it, Stu, because, you know, we're all learning here, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the, some of the things we can try to do that help us develop a, uh, a culture and a set of processes that make sure that there is equity, that make sure there is inclusion, and that make sure that work is getting done. It seems so simple when you describe it this way, uh, but I'm sure it's anything but to create the the conversational space, let's call it, mm-hmm. in which the the question of well, what are the differences that matter most mm-hmm. can be answered honestly. Mm-hmm. What do you have to do as the, as the convener or facilitator of such dialogue to ensure that you've got the right people in the room mm-hmm. and that they are able to say what they see as you know, the real issues of difference that matter? You know, Stu, it, it, in many ways, as is any of this real world work that you do, it's kind of like an imperfect process, but here's how it typically goes in the organizations I work with, mm-hmm. which is um, they're usually, by the time we start talking about it, there are a few differences that everybody agrees upon are going to be pretty important. And that's great. But it also usually means that there are some differences that are going to be important that we're not paying attention to. And mm-hmm. so we always engage in the question, what voice is missing? Ah, you, know, you explicitly um, ask that. Exactly, exactly. And the reason we ask that is because, you know, to bring awareness to our, our biases, to bring awareness to the places where, um, you know, we have sort of shaded spaces, right? Where we're not seeing exactly what we need to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may not be, it's to be honest, and here's the thing that I always think is important about this works too, is that maybe it's just my sort of the positive organizational scholarship part of me, because I do work in that area as well. But I'm not really down that much with people being evil and bad in this regard. Um, I don't deny that there are, but I don't think that's where we want to put our focus. To me, the focus is on how do you get um, people who are basically okay and or trying, people you give the benefit of the doubt, to step into this work. And so approaching it with compassion is how I would describe what you just said. 
I agree. And to, and to understand that most people are trying to do the right thing. It's just that they're struggling just like you are, just like I am. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I will say, Stu, that, um, you know, because I have lots of debates with people about it, because we, you know, a lot of us have different experiences in the world and we see the world and we have different models of, of, of humans, right? <laughs> and, um, and I always highlight the fact that when I'm doing this work, it's not so much that I'm objectively noting that this person's good and this person's not good. I don't think that's really the point. I think the point is really, if I'm going to be an agent of change, if I'm going to help people, where do I want to put my mindset? How do I want to shape my, my approach to this? Hmm. Um, and how do I want to make myself maximally able to see the whole chessboard, to see as much as I can about what's real and what's authentic for people in their lives? So what do you do to enable people to talk about the voices that are missing and to identify them? And, and further, I imagine it's even more challenging to get people to talk openly in a group setting about um, how it feels to not be seen or mm -hmm. to feel like you're an outsider mm -hmm. uh, when other people might see you as just another guy or another person. Mm -hmm. uh, but you feel removed somehow from you know the the community are there one or two you know sort of magic questions or ways of <laughs> creating those conversations that you and your many years of experience have discovered that make it if not you know perfect but easier for people mm -hmm. to talk and to hear here you know here's my model of this Stu, and I think it's deeply connected to the work we all know on the importance of psychological safety and on belongingness and the importance of that happening in any team, any group, any organization. But let's imagine what might happen. Let's sit for a moment in the room of leaders in a U.S. corporation, for example, and let's follow sort of the, what the, the, the demographics tell us that most of these people are probably male, they're probably white, they're probably straight. And there's going to be a few other people, but mostly. Yeah. And the question guys is, like me. Yeah, guys like you, Stuart. <laughs> and then the question is, how do you create the, the environment within that room mm -hmm. for people to have the authentic conversation about this work? Yes. And one of the pathways that I have found has been unbelievably powerful and has been uh, a, a revelation for me as a black, as a black man, mm -hmm. has been the diversity, the what would I call it? The, the uniquenesses of white men. And one of the things that I like to do is I like to have a conversation and share my insights about white men. I've been around white men my entire life. Um, you know, which is kind of the, the, it's kind of the story of many, many black people like me who've gone through elite education, elite uh, institutions and so on and so forth, which are predominantly right. white. Um, and I, and I've, and I sort of have this sense to where I sort of, there came a point where I've been around so many white people that I kind of like, I get white people. I know what they're about. I know how they are. I know their deal. And there was something that happened to me sort of around my midlife, which it created pause um, around the assumptions I had about white people. You thought you knew, but you perhaps didn't. Exactly. What happened? I was working with a team of senior leaders and um, the, it was the, actually, it wasn't even a diversity thing. It was a team building thing. It's going mm -hmm. really, really well. Um, during the break, one guy walks up to me and he says, with some passion and some emotion, he says, you know, I'm the nigger of this group. Hmm. And I was like, okay, well, you know, we'll talk about the language in a minute, but what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Because I'm working in a group of white men and we're all here mm -hmm. and you guys are just doing this. And then he began to talk to me. And as he spoke, tears welled up in his eyes. And it became clear that the experience this guy was talking about was real, very, very real for him. And what he was grasping was this notion of being um, excluded, being marginalized as part of his group. And I, then I looked at him, Stu, and I just started paying attention. I started seeing differences. And I noticed that, A, all these guys were like these tall, handsome, sort of silver, like kind of like, like I'm, I'm, this is my guess about what you look like. I'm looking at you in the Zoom. It's like tall, I'm handsome tall, guys. And I'm not handsome, but I am <laughs> white and I am old. <laughs> so, silver, silver hair and so on. And this guy was very short. He was about five, five. Uh -huh. um, he was uh, chubby. 
Um, he was olive skinned. Um, he had sort of hair where it was kind of like a, a, you know, where he was balding on top and sort of the hair that sort of encompassed that was circular around the side of his hair. Um, and he was not that smooth, cool, polished looking guy. Mm. Um, and he spoke sort of, he, he didn't have exactly the clear English, you know, I feared mm. that he didn't quite, maybe quite have the same education that the other, that the other men had. He was clearly an integral part of this team. Um, he led the company in this particular function, but he felt very explicitly excluded mm. as part of that. And the, what, what occurred to me in that story was simply that, oh, wait a minute. When I walked in this room, these were just five, six, seven, eight white guys. And as at the end of that sort of engagement, it was like, wait a minute, there's something else happening in this room that's affecting the people in this room that is all about diversity. But not about race. But not about race per se. So, it was, right. So exactly. let's we, we're going to have to take a short break here. And okay. that's a good note for us to, to just pause on for a minute. Beautiful. When we come back. I'm going to continue my conversation with Professor Martin Davidson of the University of Virginia's Darden School. Uh, to talk more about how we can leverage differences among us in ways that make us all stronger. I am Stu Friedman. This is Working Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. And I am really glad you're with us today, right now. I run a small management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership, dedicated to helping people and organizations find greater harmony and improve performance among the different parts of their lives. I've been on the Wharton faculty since 1984, and I'm really enjoying my conversation today with Martin Davidson the Johnson and Higgins Professor of Business Administration at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He currently serves as Senior Associate Dean and Global Chief Diversity Officer for the school. So, Martin, you were telling me about your experience of uh, someone who was identifying himself as as an outsider, treated poorly, uh, using the N-word to describe himself, but he was or so it seemed to you at first, just another one of the white guys running this company. What did you learn from that exchange? It began, it opened up for me, Stu, um, a learning journey is what I would say, which was, it caused me to sort of begin to ask the question, what is actually going on for this group of people who I have previously labeled white guys? Mm -hmm. Um, And I found it not to be an idle question because it had very practical implications. One, it allowed me to develop my work on leveraging difference even more, because as you may recall, part of what characterizes leveraging difference is paying attention to a broad set of differences. Mm-hmm. So I felt that I was onto something here. Um, but I think at a deeper level, you know what it did, Stu, is that it opened me up as a, as a, as a, as a Black man and as someone who tries to help organizations with this work. Because there's a way in which it caused me to check my assumptions, to check my stereotypes, and to continue to actually begin talking to white people. Um, and it's, it was so funny because I remember when I was early in this, it was kind of like, okay, wait a minute, Martin, maybe you're just kind of, you know, maybe, what is it? What's, what's the right way of saying it? Maybe you're just kind of getting seduced by the white people. Maybe you're just not, you know, becoming less black maybe you're becoming just just too you know compromised you've gone and, native yeah right 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 and then we, that's a funny twist on that phrase right. i love it um but i actually found that what it did was it wasn't actually taking away my my power and my strength as a black person it was actually enhancing it because as i began to have these questions and begin to have these conversations i didn't become less black i didn't sort of lose my compass around sort of the impact of race work around the reality of white supremacy or anything like that. I just started listening more. Mm. Um, And because I was listening more, then I began to learn how to create spaces 
for white people and white men and these white leaders, because you asked me about how I get people talking about seeing difference. Yeah. I was learning how to create spaces that um, legitimized and honored the diversity among whoever was in the room. I knew how to do that. I felt for people from traditionally marginalized groups, from black people, from women, I felt I knew I had a handle on that. But I don't think I'd ever really had a handle on how to legitimize the difference in diversity among white men. Um, what it's like to be short. Exactly. Which we know actually has very uh, 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 explicit impact on accessibility to leadership positions and senior executive positions. Yeah. Not performance, but selection. Exactly. Into those exactly. roles is influenced by height. Exactly. among That's other right. social demographic and physical characteristics. That's exactly Yeah, so right. that so that incident it's so uh, lovely because it 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 displays for us an awakening that you had pretty far along in the game, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that helped you to discover more about what it was going to take for you to help other people to be open to seeing um dividing lines among us mm -hmm. that's ex exactly right and to seeing and owning them um and i will mm. say what's been powerful moving forward on that stew is that it's allowed me in my research and in the work that i'm doing with uh my amazing uh uh collaborator i've been doing this work while heather wishick um it's allowed us to actually begin to explore not only those particular differences but how Okay, if we can acknowledge that we all have these varieties of differences now, why can't we now start talking about power differences, privilege, mm -hmm. and marginalization? Because part of what happened is, if you really think about it, it means that we're all in the same game. Now, granted, some of us have a lot more wind at our back in terms of privilege and power, but there, you know, one of the things that we discovered is that the uncomfortable realities, which is um, for privileged people, Sometimes, a lot of times, there are these kinds of marginalized realities that are happening, just like that man in that in that office, in that uh, team shared with me. And I often have it, by the way, very, especially in business school context, too, around social class. Mm -hmm. White people who aren't rich in business school, very, very interesting population. Of course, and um, and 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 the flip side of it, which I think is often critically empower, important, and I think it's a pathway to liberation for for black people, for people in marginalized groups is to begin to appreciate the places where our identities confer privilege for us. Because um, mm. I am absolutely black and to that extent, I am a member of a marginalized group, but I am also a man, I'm male. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also heterosexual. Um, I'm also able-bodied. There's, you know, there are a variety of places where I have wind at my back. Yeah. And if I'm only focusing on my blackness or, or, or an intersection of those, um, it's not that that may not be the important thing to do, but we got to look at the whole picture. There's uh, about 17 other questions I have about what you just said, but I will be doing our listeners a disservice if we don't get to the third piece of the process, the, the actions, taking mm -hmm. you know steps toward a more liberated and more powerful social compact through experimentation. Tell mm -hmm. us more about how you do that and maybe give us an example of uh, yeah. uh, one that uh, comes to mind. You bet. Um, you know, the, the first thing I'll say about this is that it's so simple. <laughs> um, only in the sense that when I talk about this action, engaging difference is the, is the label I give it in the model. Um, what we're really talking about is what are just the kind of things that help you build skill and competency in dealing with difference. Um, and it can be at the personal level. Mm. So it might be, um, hey, we're going to institute um, anything as simple as book club readings. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, as an, in our organization, we're going to create these informal book club readings. Very simple, very easy to do. Mm -hmm. um, it could also be uh, things like, for some organizations, this is a stretch for them, but it's like, hey, we're going to institute uh, employee resource groups mm -hmm. built on these things. Some, a lot of companies are very, very hesitant to do that because they're really afraid of, you know, well, what's that going to mean? Can we manage them well? And so on and so forth. But that's an experiment. Um, it, it's not just about people internally either. Uh, sometimes it's about, well, what markets might we begin to penetrate 
that are not our traditional uh, demographic. Um, and so sometimes it's about where can we begin doing advertising? I worked with one client once. Um, and again, I mean, I'll give you any of these examples and some of us who are listening will say, duh, isn't that obvious? But yes. you, look at, you meet people where they are, right? This one company, um, they, were, they had built a strong niche with a kind of advertising that really highlighted a kind of a, a white, feminine uh, 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 model for their product. Right? Okay. And they said, hey, we really, would like to, we really would like to broaden our market. And so I said, well, why don't you, in your, in your ads, why don't you use darker skinned women? <laughs> you know, not a lot, right? Plenty of models. And so they did it. And it will, here's what was funny, which was they, 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 gave, they kept giving me sort of uh, examples of things they might do. And they kept bringing extremely light-skinned women. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's good. But how about a darker woman? And we did this three times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so they ultimately created an ad with a dark brown woman. Uh -huh. um, but, but they were, they were moving up the, uh, the, the color scale. Exactly right. Exactly right. Deeper, and deeper to, hue until, <laughs> until what? And then once they did it, of course, it was a very successful ad campaign. Uh-huh. Um, but when I say experiment in action, this is yes. the stuff I'm talking about. There's some stuff that can be really broad based. It can be about compensation. It can be about creating a high potential uh, program for folks of color. But sometimes it's not huge things that make a big difference. So what, what causes experiments like that to fail? It could vary. Sometimes this company was really good at seeking um, feedback and paying attention. Experiments, of course, are always driven by not only trying it, but then looking at the results and then, right. and then, and then responding, right? Some uh, organizations I've been with will say, hey, okay, we'll do this, but they don't really pay attention to results. And even more damaging, they'll, in a biased way, take in feedback that sort of says, hey, we tried this new ad, it didn't work. Let's go back to the old things because we know that works. But they didn't actually rigorously examine what impact their new approach was having. Right. Because with any experiment, for it to be fruitful, you have to learn from it. And the only way to learn from it is to get some kind of data exactly. as to the impact of this planned intervention to see what worked, what didn't, and what you then need to adjust and continue to just do that process of action and reflection and action and reflection, which is something that you and I both know very well that's uh, because right. that's how we were trained. That's exactly uh, right. That's how social change, intentional social change happens, but it's really simple to describe, but hard to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that is, that's the, 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 the pain point or the, the, the failure point that you often observe is the lack of uh, commitment to reflection on what's working. That's exactly right. I think that, and, and that's, and by the way, Stu, you actually just give the bow on this entire cycle, this cycle, though, I call the leveraging difference cycle, seeing yeah. difference, understanding difference, engaging difference and leveraging difference. Mm -hmm. uh, think of a circle, but the, the bow that ties on this is that it is very much an iterative process. Mm -hmm. It's not as though, Hey, we see that race is important. We're going to learn about what happens for black people in an organization. We're going to try some things that make life better for black people. Okay. Now we're done. Let's get back to work now. That's not how it goes. It's no. the whole idea that we may see race as critical and we may create action that actually makes things better in terms of racial dynamics within our organization. But so then, that it becomes more like safety in that uh, chemical company, right? Exactly. Let exactly. me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. And I'm your host, Stu Friedman. Really glad you're listening in today. I'm speaking with Professor Martin Davidson from the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business about his take on how to create change to make differences matter uh, and, to, and to leverage them. Uh, in, in the few minutes that we have left, Martin, I wonder if we could get to your most recent project on uh, weirdness. Tell <laughs> us about that. What, what are you doing? What's your, what's your mission with that it's, new work? It's, it's a work in progress, uh, Stu. And, and sadly, I, I can't say that it's new because it's one, one of these things that's, that's been on my desk for a while. I've talked about it here and there. And um, uh, and part of it has as much to do with continuing to learn about it, a little bit to do with doing lots of other things in life. But here's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. I just had the insight that um, people who are weird, people who are outliers, in many ways are um, mirroring the experience for people who are traditionally marginalized. Um, and so 
I began to sort of try to understand. So people who are quote weird, you know, that person in a team that people have some consensus on that this, 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 this guy is really out there. Um, yet I'm particularly interested in the people who are weird, who are also productive, who actually add value. I wanted just to understand what their experience was. So this is this is people who are in some way seen as different, but not on the sort of traditional demographic uh, variations uh, that we've been talking about. Is that right? Usually not. That wasn't the criteria that I was searching for. There okay. now there are times when people who are have those demographic characteristics are identified as weird. But they usually aren't identified because of that demographic. Usually they're so, identified because they're just... How do you define a weird, a weird person in your, in your scope of research here? In, in any context, what I do is I do a brief survey of the team members. And I do this at the team level of analysis, the team members. And, sort of, mm-hmm. and, and I seek teams where there is consensus among the team members that person X is an outlier. Hmm. Um, in some teams, there is no such person. So I just move on. But in other teams where there is such a person identified, there might identified. be a person who's not been identified because people don't tell you. Right. Right. That, right. Which is very possible. Right. And 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 it's it's and sometimes there are places where a couple of people say, oh, so and so is so strange. Then other people say they're not at all strange. Right. So this I throw, I throw, I throw that out, too. I so, see. So someone who is identified in a consensus manner mm-hmm. as being different in some way. Exactly. Independent of race, gender, physical ability, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. That is not what I'm asking about. It is, and as I was saying, at times, the people identified may have a different race or gender, but that Uh is rarely what defines, you know, people aren't saying, oh yeah, the weird one is a black one. That's not what they're saying. It's usually the, the black person who's kind of a, a trekkie who uh <laughs> you know who uh who sort of has a uh a, a, you know kind of a whole different worldview and a different way of thinking about the issues that the team does but they find it's valuable because it really helps the team work together to solve problems so what what are you hoping to accomplish with this uh this project I'm trying to un- just i'm trying to understand the nature of what's what weird people uh do to allow them to thrive um, what is it that allows people who are very much living a life on the margin, who very much have a sense where they just don't fit in, they don't naturally belong, mm-hmm. how do they cope with that experience, yet remain in a place that allows them not just to be productive, but I'm also interested in when they talk about their internal experience of, of thriving. Hmm. Um, and and- What's 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 your sort of leading hypothesis or theory as to how weird people thrive in one of the things one of the things that that I begun to find that I've talked about I did a a TED talk some years ago about this um, was um, this purpose focus I'll I'll Mm -hmm. simplify I'll I'll just call it that the purpose focus and that there's something around um, the people who are strange who are in it to look strange. that it's different from people who are strange and simply aren't worried about being strange. They're focused on something else. They're focused on a larger goal. Hmm. Um, and in the, and these places where there's added value, that larger goal is usually the, the work. It's usually the project. It's usually the organization. And so it's interesting. Hmm. They, they sort of have a sense of, um, you know, how I'm seen and whether I, and the ways in which I'm treated is kind of orthogonal to what I'm really focused on. Don't really care. Don't really care. Um, and at the same time, one of the things that they will, that almost all of the people who are on the margin will say mm-hmm. is that there's a certain sense of, what's the right words to? I don't know if it's about sadness, if that's quite the right word, but there's a certain sense of, you know, uh, forlorn sense about being on the outside. Mm. Um, they'll articulate that, but it simply doesn't dominate or drive how they shape what they do and how they experience themselves. That's what I'm starting to see. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot more in it, but it's, there's, it's such a, it's, it's so rich. At some point I feel at times that I've sort of gotten a handle on the thesis of what I should do. And then I read more of the data and it's kind of like, ah, I don't know. So I continue to, I continue to, to explore. 
Well, I'm, I'm eager to see what you discover as you continue that exploration. Before we wrap, though, I wrap up, I wanted to um, ask you, I understand that you have music in your history. Yes. Uh, and that you were, as a kid, a, a pretty high level uh, performing musician. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a bass player, Stu. I, I, well, you have it partially right. I started out playing the piano and the violin, and I basically sucked at that. Um, and so when I, when I became a big enough kid in junior high school, my music teacher said, hey, why don't you play the bass? <laughs> you're, you're one of the few kids big enough to do it. And I see. It's also a little simpler. Yeah, a little, right. A little, it, well, may, a little bit. I'm um, a bass player too, Martin. Oh, are you really, Stu? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure I'm not nearly as accomplished as you, but yes, I, I played in a band in college. We played every bar in Binghamton, New York back in the early 70s. Oh my God. But I'm interested in hearing from you about how that informs your work, if in any way you can see that connection. Oh, wow. That's an interesting question, Stu. I mean, it informs my work in the following way, which is, I think maybe you can relate to this too, which is bass players are seen as kind of the strange, sort of the weird part of a band. Um, and I continue to have this experience of kind of, you know, you're carrying this big thing around. And so you were a little bit odd in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, um, what an interesting question. It also informs the work for me because part of what, the, what I love about playing the bass is the register it's the it's it's the it's the it's the sound it's the timbre of of, of of bass and there's something that i find profound in terms of the diversity work um even if this sounds esoteric it really makes sense to me though okay. which is you're looking for the common thread mm -hmm. diversity and and it works and differences come together when there's a container or something that holds it together because you can't engage in this work without deep, potentially deep conflict, whether it's expressed or not, because that's the kind of world and society that we live in. But you begin to transform that conflict when you have something that holds you together, when you have a common, it could be the mission of the organization. Mm -hmm. It could be the values of the organization. It could be the fact that even though you're very different from me, Stu, there's a part of me that just really vibes with you and I love you. And so even though I get mad at you all the time, I'm in it. Mm. Whatever that is, that's the important foundation for any of this work to happen. And if you don't have that, this can't diversity work cannot happen. And I, and when I think about the music and I think about the bass, the bass always holds that in an orchestra. It always holds that. It, it holds that foundation. It holds that, that rhythm and that sound and that tonality. It, it's the floor, right? And once you have that, you can do all kinds of things above it. And there can be all kinds of, of, of back and forth and, and tone and countertone. Is there all kinds of things that happen, but you need to have that. And mm -hmm. that always resonates for me. <laughs> Music it always resonates for me in all this work. I got that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad I asked. That's, that, <laughs> that really opens my eyes to thinking about uh, music and bass in particular, you know, being able to both express uh, rhythm and melody, uh, but also to contain the whole yeah. and to create a, a foundation or a floor yes. for, the, for the work of building. Um, thank you for that. So you, you live on Singing Farm. Am I, am I correct about that as well? That's right. That okay. is right. So this... You may see a connection here between my former question and the one I'm asking now. What is Singing Farm and how does that relate to your work? <laughs> my wife and I, um, you know, joyfully sort of live on a, a, a lovely plot of land here in Virginia. Um, and really, it's about the ability. I This is a place where I just follow my amazing wife and in uh, sort of her she is, she's a visionary in many ways, um, around a place where um, there's a quality of self-sufficiency in it. Um, you know, the, it's, a, it's a solar powered, it was an off the grid solar powered uh, uh, place when we got it and remains solar powered in, in this time. And, and we work on it from a sustainability perspective, trying to do things that um, are good for the earth in terms of how we grow food. Uh, we're not a big deal. Uh -huh. You know, we're a small, kind of a small operation. 
but it's very, very rewarding. Um, and it's really, really enjoyable. And the singing part of it is as much, uh, uh, you know, my wife's inspiration because she's an amazing singer. But also, you know, when you live out there, you hear, you hear lots of music. <laughs> as a city boy growing up in the city and then being able to live out in the country, there's a lot of music out there. Lots of songs and animals and sounds. It's really cool. Yes. Well, uh, hearing the, the harmonies among the sounds of nature, uh, that is a perfect note, I think, for us to close on. Double entendre intended there. Uh, Martin <laughs> Davidson, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How can our listeners find out more about your work? You know, the, um, it's easy for people to Google me at this point. Martin Davidson and Martin Davidson Diversity is what you'll see. And there, um, they give you sort of varieties of pathways. You can find me on my website at the University of Virginia at the Darden School of Business. Um, or at my own website, leveragingdifference.com. And, and what's, in, in just 15 seconds, the most important idea uh, that people are going to be um, enlightened by in their further discovery of your work? Mm. I think there's an idea that, and so you ask great questions, there's an idea that um, difference can make us better mm. differences bring us together and it's not something we have to be afraid of mm. even in a contentious world a politically divisive world that we live in now it has not something to be afraid of it's something that we can pull together and then oh, it can be and then it can be done without it can be done baby steps <laughs> yes 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 martin davidson thank you so much and thank you everyone who is listening you that is uh, for joining us. Please don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question or a comment about something you heard on today's show, you can email me, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu or our station at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter, SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Edited versions of our show will appear in a couple weeks at totalleadership.org. All kinds of free resources, videos, book chapters, Stuff like that for you to peruse there. Thanks to Patty Hall, our producer, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.